Welcome to the Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neil. Today I'm being interviewed by my housemate, Analia, about the connections between psychedelics, veganism, meditation, tech addiction, ego death, and dancing. This conversation originally aired as the first episode of Analia's new radio talk show, The Conversation Pit, on the student-run Austin radio station, KVRX 91.7 FM, where I was also radio host once. You should be able to catch her show on Wednesdays at 6 p.m., either on the radio if you're around Austin, or live stream on kvrx.org slash player. Analia is a Plan 2 and History major at the University of Texas at Austin. She is passionate about yoga, running, and mindfulness, curious about the intersection between Judaism and Buddhism, excited about floral prints, and currently contemplating acquiring a bearded dragon. Analia and I live in the House of Commons Co-op, and this episode is an example of the many conversations we have had on such topics. If you enjoy visiting the Room of Lives, consider donating Ether, Dai, or other Ethereum-based coins to abronil.eth, that's A-B-H-R-A-N-I-L dot E-T-H. KVRX Austin. This is Analia Solomon coming in live. Not live. This is pre-recorded. I'm such a. Li- I'm starting out with lies. Really, this is this is how it's gonna go. Oh, sorry, y'all. But um, well, it's live now. It's live now. Yeah. yeah. But it will be dead by the time. <laughs> by the time. By the time you listener are hearing this. Yeah. We will be dead. Just kidding. Just kidding. Don't worry about us. We're fine. Anyways, I'm Analia Salman. This is my first show of many, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. I don't have a show name yet, so if you all have any suggestions, please um, hit me up on like Facebook Messenger or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but I have a guest today! Yay! <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Oh my gosh. Um, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, do I want to introduce myself? Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Neil. My full name is Abhraneel. I am from India and I am a physics slash neuroscience PhD student uh, at UT. By that, I mean that I'm getting my PhD in physics, but my research is kind of in the area of neuroscience where I use tools from physics and math to answer questions about the workings of the mind. An interdisciplinary king. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, the reason I brought Abraniel on today is because he has some pretty interesting research interests, interesting interests, mm-hmm. that um, I think the world should hear about. I think it's a hot topic within... Our generation, it's been a hot topic for generations, but it's had a few roadblocks. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're probably dying to know what it is. Yeah. It's... Da, 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 da. <laughs> Am I supposed to say it? Okay, let's say it at the same time. Okay. One, two, 
three psychedelics <laughs> yep that's right folks we yeah. we are talking about psychedelics today mind altering substances yeah. so do you want to do you want to kick it off with just like a brief overview I'll, I'll leave you to talk about it unprompted and then I'll ask more questions yeah yeah okay so to to clarify my current research is not about psychedelics uh, my current research is uh, what you would call maybe the field of computational neuroscience. And right now I'm a PhD student, but after I finish my PhD, I want to kind of slightly jump ship and do research in the field of uh, psychedelics. So that's my research interest for the future. Um, I guess to give a little background, why am I interested? Well. Firstly, I'm, I'm interested in how the human mind works. This is why I'm in my current field. Um, and as part of that curiosity, I have taken psychedelics myself and had some of the most profound experiences of my adult life. Um, and since I yeah, kind of mostly decide what to do with my life based on what most interests me, I decided that I couldn't not research psychedelics. Um, there's really nothing else that I find quite as interesting to learn more about, um, yeah, as psychedelics. So yeah, so so far I've only had kind of personal experiences with psychedelics, but since I want to go into this field, I have talked to uh, professors and other people who do research. I have spoken to people who use psychedelics as um, uh, an aid for therapy. Uh, that's also something that I'm kind of interested in, um, especially in this day and age when psychedelics research is trying to recover from the kind of blockades that you were talking about. I mean, there had already actually been a lot of research um, ongoing in psychedelics in like the 60s and 70s, I guess. But then things started becoming uh, shut down including the research. And so now as psychedelics research tries to kind of ramp up again, what we find is that it's helpful to get our foot in the door by starting with the applications that are medical and therapeutic, because that kind of invites the least bit of opposition. So uh, this is why I think a lot of people who are researching psychedelics today are doing it with a therapeutic application in mind. Um, my interests are more in the pure science aspect of it, like asking questions about what do psychedelic experiences tell us about the nature of the mind and also about the nature of reality itself. Um, but I would also be down to do some uh, therapy-related work, but I don't have any formal background in it. Um, so I guess, is that a sufficient, ba yeah, background? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great background. There's mm -hmm. a lot to unpack there. Um, so for those of y'all that don't already know, uh, the war on drugs put a halt to a lot of emerging research that was, um, surrounding like depression, PTSD. Yeah. Um, what else? Yeah. So these are the ways in which psychedelics were being used for the betterment of ill people. But uh, a lot of people have also evangelized 
the use of psychedelics for the betterment of well people. Um, so if, if someone is listening into this and are interested in psychedelics, I really highly recommend this book called How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, uh, who used to be a, I guess, New York Times food columnist. And he first shot to fame because of his writings about food. One of his famous books on food is called In Defense of Food. I don't know if people have heard of it. But then he kind of got into psychedelics and uh, he has the mind of a skeptic. So he does this very thorough review of what actually happened with psychedelics in the United States, what was the history of that. And then he started actually taking psychedelics in like, you know, middle age for the first time. And so he documents all of his experiences and he talks to people about the science of it, etc. And interestingly, he finds that the use of psychedelics are very complementary to uh, his sort of plant-based uh, diet approach. And that's kind of interesting, like, wow, where do those things connect? So for that, you would have to read the book. But it was from that book that I also kind of learned a little bit about um, the research that used to happen, and then it kind of got shut down, and how it's slowly uh, starting back up again. I actually saw this guy give a talk slash panel discussion in the Horizons Conference for Psychedelics uh, that I attended two years in a row in New York City. I forget what I'm talking about. Um. <laughs> um, well, one thing you mentioned was the intersection of uh, plant-based eating and psychedelics, yeah. uh, which is interesting because I've actually heard some anecdotal evidence of that. I've talked to a few people that, you know, they said, oh, after I tripped, I immediately became a vegetarian. Yeah. I immediately became vegan. We have, became have you kosher. actually met people like yeah, that? Yeah, I, I met wow. this girl, um, I'm not going to say her name, and, yeah. you know, confidentiality, but yeah. um, this was before... Oh, I, by the way, are we outing ourselves oh, on radio? Is on the, radio? Am I going to hear sirens the moment this oh, goes my goodness. on here? I don't, I don't care, think actually. So. Yeah. I don't think that's how it works. Yeah, I've already outed myself. Yeah, I think by going to a psychedelics conference and putting your name on that roster, you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The government, <laughs> the government knows <laughs> the what government you're up to. But sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, yeah, sorry. So you met this girl. I met this girl, and she was telling me that she took mushrooms in yeah. the forest, yeah. and um, then just started thinking about like cows <laughs> and, 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 that, and she's kosher or she's jewish and yeah. that inspired her to be vegetarian and yeah. kosher yeah and like i i don't know it's interesting because that seems like a common thread but yeah is there any scientific backing yet <laughs> okay well i don't i don't know how much science has been done on this it's still a very new field but I have a couple of anecdotes, okay? <laughs> a lot of cool science starts with anecdotes. Definitely. Um, What's that called where science starts from, like, anecdotes and observations? Because doesn't that stray more from the scientific method, or...? Well, uh, the scientific method is not really just, like, this rigid method that you always... I think even if science starts from an interesting anecdote, if you want to delve into that question more deeply and do a thorough investigation... That's when the scientific method becomes more useful, but it, not a lot of the time does it start with the scientific method. The scientific gotcha. method tells you how to answer the question, but it doesn't tell you how to ask. And mm. the question asking could happen because you heard an interesting anecdote uh, from someone. 
So while I was in this Horizons Psychedelics Conference in New York City, I was taking a break uh, during lunch and um, the restaurant where I ordered the food, they gave me uh, like an extra order by mistake or something. So I had this like extra box of food um, and it had meat and it had chicken. And I was walking back to the conference center uh, when I saw uh, this homeless girl uh, on the sidewalk and I said, um, hi, do you want this food? And she said, oh, thank you. And then she opened the box and she said, oh, I can't eat this. I'm vegetarian. So I was a little surprised how she can maintain herself as vegetarian while living on the streets. So I started a conversation with her. Her name was Blue. I did. I recorded this entire conversation with her and it's on my podcast by the way because i found it fascinating yeah do you want to plug your podcast by the way um well not necessarily but if you're interested it's not like i don't want you to listen to it but (laughs) i i'm also not i not particularly motivated to uh pump it much Uh, it's called the room of lives it's on whatever podcast uh, app you listen to um so So I started talking to her a little bit about how she became vegetarian and she told me about her early childhood trauma, why she ran away from home and she has been working in farms for a long time, working children's rides at a carnival. She told me her whole life story, which was fascinating, but she also told me how she became vegetarian and it had to do, so I told her I'm here for a psychedelics conference and she said, wow, you know, one time I was uh, with my friend and we went out in nature and I, and she tripped on something and she said she felt completely connected with nature. Uh, she said that I could feel everything. I said, what exactly do you mean by that? And she said, I felt every blade of grass and every leaf on every tree and I was one with the earth. And that's, I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> but she said that and then she said, okay, yeah, that trip was beautiful. And then as we were coming down, my friend said, hey, do you want this burger? And she said, no, I never want that (laughs) burger again. So that's one anecdote. The other stuff that I've kind of heard or read is in that book that I mentioned, How to Change Your Mind. And he kind of talks a little bit about his, Michael Pollan talks about his personal experiences of how he started viewing plants after his psychedelic trips, he said, like, I took this mushrooms or whatever, and I went out in my garden and everything, all the plants seemed to be breathing with energy and everything. They seemed just more vibrant. And he said that, you know, you kind of irreversibly changes your perception of nature. And it might actually chemically do something to your mind so that you start preferring eating plant-based food. It's all quite curious which is what i want to get into it makes me curious this is why i want to do research follow the the questions yeah the mushrooms themselves are not plants though they are fungi yeah so yeah Yeah, the mushrooms aren't even vegan themselves yeah (laughs) but they're turning everyone vegan (laughs) what's up with that (laughs) yeah so yeah so at this point it's just kind of anecdotal yeah yeah definitely i i'm uh familiar with like that that kind of common thread of like psychedelics leading to this feeling of oneness and I think increased empathy so um it's interesting like how our empathy can like stretch and contract as we become like more open-minded or more closed-minded and jaded you know 
how much we can relate to other beings and the fact that certain substances can open us up in a way that like others that we haven't been before and that also makes me wonder like is there any way to achieve these effects without the use of oh yeah absolutely absolutely actually um that's another question that really motivates me a lot because i don't want to i mean it's really cool that these substances exist and i think people should take advantage of them but sometimes it can become a little bit of a slippery slope where you start using these substances as a crutch and do not take a lot of responsibility to model that behavior in your regular sober life um yeah it's but, it's probably easier in a state of euphoria yeah. to you know act on these like, more positive yeah yeah parts of ourselves yeah but this i it's interesting that you bring up this question because I think the first time I encountered that very same question was when I read this book called Waking Up um, by Sam Harris, who is a Western neuroscientist who has got into psychedelics and then got into spirituality. And what he describes in the first chapter is his first experience with MDMA, also known as ecstasy, back when it hadn't become a partying club drug yet. And he took it with a friend and he said that he found this boundless love for all beings that included everyone, including any stranger that could have walked into the room at that time. Um, and it was a profoundly, um, it was like, a, it was a profound experience for him. And he said that he started wondering, is it possible to feel this way without a drug? Um, and I think much of his spiritual pursuits, like he went into India and Burma and like, uh, did a lot of uh, spiritual training under different gurus, went into like long periods of solitary meditation in the mountains. Um, a lot of it, he said, was motivated by this question. He said, I want to be able to access this without the uh, help of drugs. And eventually he has come back and like said that, oh yes, practices exist that do not use drugs uh, where you can actually sit and deliberately exercise the muscle of compassion until it gets stronger and we have kind of like you and i have done this meditation a couple times uh in it's in the tough, y'all. <laughs> yeah it's difficult it involves imagination but in the buddhist tradition there is this meditation called loving kindness meditation also called compassion meditation which uh like in their language is called tonglen tonglen meditation or metta meditation in which you basically sit and imagine um, certain people in your life suffering and you basically try to imagine from their point of view how it must feel to suffer. So you're basically exercising this muscle of empathy, which is the muscle of imagining what it feels like to be another person. Um, and then with every in-breath, you take in your suffering, and with every out-breath, you give them your peace and joy. And Sam Harris has said on podcasts that with uh, the use of this practice, you can definitely reach this states of boundless um, love towards all beings that you can also access um, through um, psychedelics like uh, ecstasy. Yeah. So that's pretty, that's pretty cool. So in, in that sense, psychedelics are like a little window into what is possible. Totally. Yeah. It definitely expedites the process. Yeah. I mean, 
we've been meditating all summer. You've been meditating for three years. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of the newbie, but I definitely have been seeing the effects in my day to day. You know, I'm much less reactive. Yeah. Um, I feel more at peace with just like what is in the present, what exists, uh, immediately in front of me, which is, pretty powerful and I know I still have a long way to go yeah. in becoming my most compassionate <laughs> self but um oh yeah maybe you could talk about some of yeah. the 10-day meditation retreats and anything you got out of that and how it might uh, tie into the sorts of consciousness that we oh yeah unlock with yeah. psychedelics so yeah I've been kind of regularly meditating for the last three years or so now Actually, it's the same book by Sam Harris that got me started uh, in meditation. And yeah, so I went on a 10-day silent meditation retreat in Texas, of all places. You wouldn't imagine. It was like out in like, you know, farm country, uh, right next to some like farms with uh, like Trump uh, flags on them. (laughs) It was funny. But you got to practice some more loving kindness when you're out there. Yeah. So what that kind of a retreat does is it is quite unlike regular life. Imagine for 10 days, you're not reading any books, you're not writing anything, you're not speaking a single word. Uh, There is no technology. You are not even really making eye contact with everyone and you're meditating for multiple hours a day and you wake up at like 4 a.m. Um... And very little exercise, there's nothing really to do. You're just in this place. Maybe you can take a couple of walks around the building. Yeah. So that state of existence is so markedly different from your regular state of existence that it just, it definitely, for me, and I think for most people, it elicits a shift in the state of your consciousness that is not quite possible in, in daily life. It's like briefer meditations a little bit, but with 10-day meditations, it's like a pressure cooker kind of thing. Yeah. And it's going to change stuff. So in that sense, it does enable uh, an altered state of consciousness in much the same way as psychedelics do. But I should stress here that I think this phrase, altered state of consciousness, can be easily misinterpreted to mean that we are not happy with our regular state of consciousness and therefore we do psychedelics or we go and meditate to find an altered state of consciousness. It's not quite that way. Uh, I think in some ways it is the opposite. In our regular life, we're constantly distracting. I'm not talking about meditation, not so much about psychedelics. We're constantly distracting ourselves from our baseline state of consciousness because it is uncomfortable. We wake up in the morning, ah, let's make some coffee, and then after some time, the feeling of discomfort catches up, so let's do something else, blah, 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 etc. Whereas in meditation, you are kind of forced to just inhabit wherever you are, and your mind, you're encouraged to just stay in it for a long period of time. And when you stay in your baseline level of consciousness for a long time and pay careful attention to it, certain things start to buckle and shift. Um, For one, I think I started getting much deeper clarity into what was happening in my mind. And eventually my mind started calming down quite a little bit. My body also calmed down quite a bit. 
Um, and for advanced meditators, uh, there are certain things that happen that are quite interesting. Like you, if you go deep enough into meditation, the sense of self from the eyes of which we view our entire experience can fall away. Yeah. Like the center drops away from experience. Um, what does that mean? Well, that's like a whole can of worms there. Yeah. But We can circle back to that <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think the experiences uh, engendered by psychedelics have a lot of overlap with the experiences engendered by meditation. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I like to refer to it more as awakened state than altered state. I yeah. Because it's not like altering anything outside it's just kind of changing your attention you know meditation is focusing your intent your attention on the breath psychedelics is opening yourself up to let your attention be pulled in places that you know might not normally inhabit i guess yeah 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 Yeah, i think i would call them both heightened awareness Mm -hmm. states yeah which is cool i feel like it's uh, you know, boredom seems to be a plague, especially in coronavirus. Like, yeah. I, a lot of people are feeling boredom, and yeah. um, that causes a lot of uncomfortable feelings. But yeah. um, I don't know. Do you yeah. think that you are more comfortable with boredom? Absolutely, and I think this, this, uh, yeah. Okay, so. Okay, well, I, I have a lot of things to say about boredom, but I'm going to try and keep it short. I think today's technology has a lot to do with how bored people feel. Um, totally. Uh, we have gotten so used to entertainment in the time scale of seconds that to just sit and wait and stew in the discomfort of being for any longer than that, just, it's just it's, most people are seemingly unable to do that. I mean, how many people do you see just waiting in a bus stop without pulling their phones out? Yeah. So, and like, and you might know that the diagnosis of conditions like attention deficit disorder have just been skyrocketing. Totally. And I think a lot of it has to do with the use of this constantly stimulating technology from a very young age. Um, so, yeah. So, boredom. It's quite sad <laughs> that life is no longer enough that there's this like particular subset of life called the screen that is the only entertaining thing but what it does is i think it's a kind of yeah i mean it distracts you for a little bit but i think constantly engaging with this very brief uh, stimulations uh, makes your baseline satisfaction with regular life worse like it's not so you're not so happy just just being so there's a flip side to that and i think we don't notice the flip side so at some point i kind of started noticing the flip side pretty clearly i also started noticing that my attention span was not long enough given the amount of work that i wanted to do as a phd student so i started taking some more deliberate steps so i cut down my screen time i actually stopped taking my phone to work Um, Meditation helped me a lot with this, and I can definitely attest to the fact that over the last year or so, I have become much better at paying attention to things that are not, uh, like, constantly stimulating, like technology. It doesn't mean that I'm not stimulated 
it just means that I go to other things for stimulation. Like the mind, my mind is always looking for stimulation. But now that I don't feed it with the technology stimulation, it goes to other things. Like research has become quite interesting to me. Like reading books have become much more easy. And these are activities that do not have an immediate reward at all. Yeah, well, for me, the research does have an immediate reward. Like any moment I figure something out, it has a reward. But the rewards don't come in hits of like 30 seconds. Like I have to work on it for sometimes several hours, sometimes a couple of days before I start mining the rewards. And like one could ask like, why, what is the difference between rewards on the timescale of seconds versus on the timescale of days? Why does the timescale matter? And I think it's not just the timescale. I feel like the, yeah, the ups and downs happen mm-hmm. on a longer timescale, but also my general baseline contentment is more. So I think it's not just the timescale it's also how you feel when you're not getting that reward. Yeah, uh, it's it's kind of like, um, well, this I forgot the technical term for this, but there's a phenomenon in economics where the more wealthy you become, the more you just adapt to your lifestyle oh, yeah, yeah. to meet it, and then um, you're just constantly on the search for more and yeah. you're maintaining what you have, but there's always going to be the next step. And, you yeah. know, I, I think like slowing down the process and being grateful for like what you have in the yeah. moment um can can increase satisfaction because the you know when you're constantly on the chase satisfaction maybe yeah. will come in a burst and then yeah. you're you're kind of like frenetically chasing it again yeah 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 and i think it has to do with intrinsically how humans are and how how our mind is our dopamine system which is our reward pleasure system is connected not to the absolute quality of our life but differences like i expect this to happen was what happened better or worse than what i expected now if i'm a millionaire i don't wake up every morning you know just so happy to be a millionaire because that is my expectation now so so that's why because the dopamine system works only on the basis of differences from expectation and your expectation always catches up to the current quality of your life so you're always kept uh, seeking the extra whatever is extra whatever is more than what you already have and that's what makes you happy accessible to get that yeah these yeah. devices and and anything that's lower than what you expect even if what you expect is you know, so much luxurious than what 99.99% of people can afford, even if you get something that is slightly suboptimal, if you become from a billionaire to millionaire, some people could kill themselves. <laughs> oh so so that is, that's actually quite amazing that the human mind in that way is like an infinite adapting machine. It adapts its expectations to reality. Which means that is why hedonism doesn't work because you keep chasing it, but the expectations keep catching up. And so the pleasures are fleeting. But what that also implies is that you can go in the other direction, which means you can go in the direction of removing these stimulations. And in the beginning, you're going to feel that craving, but the mind is going to adapt to that as well and say, wow, okay, today, actually the flowers that I saw on my way to work were interesting because I'm not constantly bombarding it with this 
whatever game on my phone. Yeah. So so There's that's a really cool tree on Dean Key. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so what is what is the curse is also a blessing if used in the other direction. Then yeah, so the human mind has the ability to adapt in the other direction as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting and such a rewarding thing, but there's like it seems there's a really steep learning curve and with people in my generation it seems like we've kind of we've grown up with these phones almost. Yeah. I mean, we did know a time before, but like, you know, our brains have kind of got adapted to this yeah. level. So, how how would you appeal to um people in college to say it actually is worth it to deny yourself pleasure for ultimate contentedness and satisfaction or not deny yourself yeah. pleasure but explore different realms of pleasure than yeah than what seems like in the in the dopamine seeking brain yeah the yeah most practical option <laughs> i think i think it's difficult it is difficult okay so in some ways i already feel a kind of generation gulf like I'm 31 and sometimes I've interacted with I don't know like new undergrads and I feel like I feel like their relationship with technology is already quite markedly different from the relationship with technology of myself and my peers and it could be a thing that has not just to do with my age but also the particular community of people that I hang out with who are like physics graduate yeah. students and you know something that requires that yeah. kind of sustained yeah attention. yeah 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 so so it's a little difficult for me to speak across this gulf but the only things that I can appeal to are I think that all humans universally have in common I think our minds work similarly so what I have to say will definitely work similarly for someone who is addicted to technology all the understand it might be harder I don't think I ever got as addicted as some of the younger people have gotten yeah. I've definitely seen myself like get addicted and then yeah. um and then break that and feel feel more satisfied with my life but yeah. then you know in a moment of weakness where maybe like my mood is lower I'm feeling depressed or oh, something yeah. I'll be like oh well I guess I can re-download this app I guess I can yeah. just scroll this yeah. and and then you're hooked again yeah I mean and I've, you feel I've worse done yeah I've done, I've done that many times so I guess I don't want to here's the thing what is being proposed here is not a denial of pleasure that's yeah. not what is being proposed here is is that a deeper happiness is possible than what is being pursued with this technology and it's yeah. worth having so much more than this fleeting pleasure what what I'm what I have done or tried to do with my life is actually go in the pursuit of this deeper happiness uh so I think this happiness is something that everyone wants and that's why there's this technology that kind of fills this vacuum and makes you feel happy for a little bit but wouldn't you want a deeper source of that yeah, um not be so dependent on yeah, the external yeah yeah so so i would like to pitch it as that that there is a way to get to a deeper happiness and um so that's the motivation 
but the motivation is not enough to just tell people well throw this phone away that's it's really <laughs> difficult so you have to give a person a task that's what was useful for me is you're you're waiting at a bus stop and everyone has their phones out and if you feel like taking your phone out of your pocket and maybe checking this app that you have with its infinite repository of notifications um what do you do in that moment if you don't pull your phone out you start feeling uncomfortable and the meditative way of going about it the mindful way of going about it is actually give your mind a task instead of focusing on whatever you would be doing on your phone um set your mind on the task of feeling or or noting or noticing how you're feeling in that moment in other words noticing very carefully the feeling of discomfort that is coming up in your body and not try to run from it also not try to listen to whatever it says like the the, the feeling might say pull out your phone but so instead of just blindly obeying orders you sit and pay attention to this evolving feeling of discomfort in the body and try to keep your attention on it um so do not suppress that voice do not do not try to suppress this urge but also do not listen to what it is saying but just sit and pay attention and what that does is over time it does a great many things over time it makes us more familiar with how discomfort feels in the body and if you don't yield to it you gradually start noticing that you don't have to like it has a certain dynamic in a certain time scale that arises in the body and it kind of passes away and you don't have to become a slave to it yeah. this discomfort is something that you can fully sit there and pay attention to and it will pass and you will be fine so and that that is a very empowering experience actually I was about like, to wow. say the word yeah, empowering it's quite empowering also it gives you a lot more awareness and clarity into the nature of your own self and what it also does is this is the beginning of that reverse adaptation that i was talking about is that the first time you feel the discomfort it's going to be quite uncomfortable but then the mind kind of adjusts its expectations a slight bit the next time you encounter the discomfort is not going to be quite as strong so what people are afraid of when they start doing this kinds of tech detox in the beginning is like oh my god that was so uncomfortable i have to do this forever <laughs> but it's not that diff- like the next time it's not going to be that hard it's 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 a path of constantly reducing friction so at some point like today i can just sit and wait at a bus stop for a long period of time without even taking out my phone and it's not a heroic effort at all i just sit there yeah maybe after we finish recording this we'll go to the bus stop <laughs> <laughs> every bus that comes like no nah, we don't want to get on it wanna... <laughs> i'm actually feeling really at peace right now <laughs> <laughs> but i need to be in a bus stop <laughs> yeah <laughs> you heard it here first folks it only works <laughs> only works <laughs> bus stops airports train stations yeah wherever you need traffic yeah. honestly mindfulness will help with austin traffic yeah if if you need any more yeah, reason yeah. yeah i really lose my shit any any time that the bus <laughs> arrives on time like come on come on i was getting <laughs> in my groove <laughs> yeah nice so to circle it back to psychedelics yeah. um one thing that is really common in people's anecdotal experience and something people actively seek out is this concept of ego death. Yeah. Um do you mind 
explaining what ego death is and your experience with that. Yeah. So I guess there is a what is the ego is what we have to start with. I think there is a um, a sort of popular notion of what the ego is. You can definitely you definitely know people in your life who have a pretty strong ego, and then maybe also know people who don't have such a strong ego. <coughs> I would sum it up as the tendency of self-aggrandizing. How much importance do you place on yourself and to what extents are you willing to go to defend it, to aggrandize it, to project it on others um, and to not be okay with any time like your wishes and desires are being overridden by someone else's. So that's the general notion of the ego. Um, and psychedelics have been known to cause a certain erosion or sometimes a, a vanishing altogether of this thing called the ego. And to a lot of people, it might sound like something that they absolutely do not want to experience. Uh, but to certain other people, when they hear this, they're like, yeah, I, I want to kind of experience it. And that was the way for me after I had read a little bit about the ego death and I had seen why it would be beneficial to be able to experience that state. Um, I have actually kind of crafted a lot of my life in the past few years consciously in the direction of uh, just lowering and reducing this sense of the ego. Um, and sometimes it has been made possible quite radically, uh, quite drastically by psychedelic experiences. And ecstasy is one of them. Ecstasy was actually an, uh, originally just an empathogen, meaning that it allows you to empathize with other people. Uh, and the way that it does this is, I think, by dissolving this sense of the ego. The sense of the ego is also the sense of separation from everything else. Um, so this boundless love that I was talking about earlier, uh, another way of seeing it is what remains when the ego is gone. Um, so I've definitely had very drastic experiences of ego death on ecstasy. And then even more, uh, drastic experiences of a complete lack of the sense of self. Like when I'm on ecstasy, it feels like I am still a person living in this body, looking out at the world. I just don't feel the sense of ego. But in certain other experiences, like one time when I took mushrooms, it didn't even feel like I was a somebody. Um, and the character, I remember I was in my room with uh, two of my other friends and we were all tripping together. And I remember that at that time, it felt like this character that is Neil was on the same level as the other two characters, just three characters in a room. And, and you are the central point. No, and I'm not the one that's one of them. It's uh. just like a kind of play happening with three characters in a room. And the play just seems to be happening from a point of view where two of those characters can be seen fully in their physical form. Whereas in one of the characters, only the arms and legs can be seen, not the, not the head. But, 
But <laughs> the interesting part of that was that when it was possible to see even myself on the same footing as others, it was possible to empathize with this character called Neil in the same way that I could empathize with the other characters. Um, so contrary to what some people might believe, when you have this ego death, you don't have an alienation from yourself and therefore you don't care about yourself. In fact, when I saw this character called Neil on the same footing as everyone else, I felt like this character was included in the same way in this all-consuming, wholesome feeling of love, which I think, if you really pay attention to it, I think we are our own selves are the ones that very rarely get the most unbiased, um, a sort of most unbiased love that we are able to sometimes provide for other people because I think our perceptions of ourselves, including even our physical perceptions that we see in the mirror, are quite distorted. Definitely. I feel like we are able to perceive other people often much more neutrally than we are able to perceive ourselves. Um, so that was quite an interesting experience for me. Um, so yeah, so I've had these ego death experiences with psychedelics. But just like with Sam Harris, I was interested to learn from those experiences and then try to kind of emulate them and go in that direction in my sober life. So I took certain lessons from it and I tried to piece together things. I was like, okay, so for example, why is it so much easier to dance at like, I don't know, parties or concerts when you're on ecstasy? Uh, and I was telling you about this maybe earlier, is because there is m much less embarrassment. So I kind of pieced it together. It was like, oh, so embarrassment must be an arm of the ego, which this ecstasy is eroding. And definitely in my sober life, it is possible for me to practice eroding embarrassment. So I started going to nightclubs with music and started dancing in ways that would make me feel embarrassed. <laughs> and, it, and it basically the adaptation machine of the brain kicked in. And after the fifth time I did that same thing, it just couldn't manage to feel as embarrassed. Uh, <laughs> so using like little insights like this, I've tried to do like actual practices in my life. Um, like when someone is speaking, I try to be much more fully present and that's a form of empathy. And I think with these practices, it's possible to do little bits of ego death yourself. DIY. <laughs> <laughs> DIY ego death. Challenge yeah. yourself past your self-consciousness. <laughs> sounds very liberating. Yeah. I'm going to go try dancing. <laughs> dancing like an idiot in the comments of our co-op. <laughs> yeah. See what happens. <laughs> Probably nothing too consequential besides yeah. the embarrassment. Yeah, it could go wrong in the complete opposite direction <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, I think it's helpful to do it with people first who just don't know you. You don't care. Oh, yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, what you were saying about ecstasy reminded me of this other book that I read called Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown. Mm -hmm. And she has a, it's like a collection of essays. And she has one essay called like, um, like ecstasy st saved my life or something. Yeah. And she talks about, and this was also before it, 
ecstasy got this like kind of association as this rave party drug. Yeah. Um, so basically what she would do, she was in this period of her life where she was very, very depressed. Um, but she had her own place and she would invite friends over and they would take ecstasy. And, um, she talks about how just like knowing that you would just have this like period of like pure unbridled joy and connection with your friends was like one of the most healing things Mm -hmm. for her. Um, she also clarifies that she doesn't endorse just doing, um, ecstasy whenever you feel depressed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she talks about like the lessons that she learned from that and how it was able to pull her out, which is interesting because, you know, depression is a really tough nut to crack. Like there are these normalized therapeutic responses to depression, but there's also a lot of people that have, um, what's labeled as treatment resistant depression. Yeah. Um, which I I don't know. I don't think that you're resisting treatment. I think people are different in different treatments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the depression is resistant to that particular form of treatment. Exactly. In fact, one of the arms of research that... So there's this group in Brazil that I'm tentatively interested to join to do psychedelics research, and their recent research has been in the use of ayahuasca Mm. for treatment-resistant depression. It's been quite effective. Wonderful. Yeah. That that brings up another point, which is kind of unrelated. This might be a like big jump, but um so I know that like ayahuasca trips are um kind of they've become kind of hip and trendy within like celebrities. Um, oh, exactly. or like uh I, I watched this documentary on Netflix. Maybe some of the listeners have seen it as well. It's like called Psychedelics or something. It talks about how like um whatever her name is, Princess Leia, uh, she would, like, go on these journeys, sting to... Is it called Have a Good Trip? I think so. (laughs) And it's not the best documentary, I'm going to be real. It's just a bunch of celebrities talking about their uh, psychedelic experiences and um, how they just will, like, go uh, and fly to these places and join these tribes for these rituals and then kind of, like, leave. And I don't know, that kind of rubs me the wrong way that only the privileged elite have access to this and that they also go in and like kind of piggyback on these like ancient tribal tribal traditions for like a mind-altering experience yeah 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 so um that's kind of a big open-ended question but how do you feel about that (laughs) well i think the ceremonies themselves are quite uh quite useful Mm-hmm. Um, but this celebrity thing might be recent, but uh, a whole bunch of tourists flocking to parts of Latin America for these ceremonies has been going on for years now. And what I've heard is, so there are these shamans that you find in places like Peru and Brazil who will conduct these ceremonies, sometimes in the Amazon jungle. And because of this proliferation of this psychedelic ceremony tourists, um, there's a lot of shamans who will just like do it, but like they, they don't really have the depth and the training and the experience. Uh, this is what happens when anything becomes like too mainstream. So the number that I've heard and a lot of people say is that only 10% of the shamans are legitimate and they actually have the oh, full <laughs> knowledge. So, so this phenomenon is not new. 
and I personally am interested to do one of these ceremonies. So what I want to do when it comes time is I want to leverage the connections that I have. Like I, I know several people in the Sacramento community who are like really kind of deep in it. So I will be able to figure out from them who are the shamans who are like among the 10% and etc. And like take my time and actually do uh, yeah, a proper job of it. Uh, also intentions matter a lot if you're just seeking a kind of holiday from your life uh, then it's one thing but if it is something that's more profound than that I think it is possible to spend more time and effort and dedication to find the right person and actually actually do it right so I feel like I don't actually at the end of the day care so much about what this global phenomenon is I only care mostly about what it means for me and if for me it means I have to spend some more time uh, finding a, a place and a, and, a, and a person and a group to do it with then so be it. Um, I, think, I think that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I think that's a good message to impart on our listeners is do your research on your shaman. <laughs> yeah, also do your research on your psychedelics before you do them. Definitely. For example, you should research very well why you shouldn't take ecstasy every day to to not feel depressed. Yeah. <laughs> before before you take any of the psychedelics. Why yeah. not? Yeah. Hmm, why not? Well, <laughs> because it has a come down. It depletes your serotonin. Uh, should read a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, our brains are adaptable. We don't want to adapt yeah. them to be yeah. dependent on anything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, clarify, clarification, we are not endorsing um, self-medicating. Yeah. But we're not also not yeah. saying don't ever. Yeah, experiment. I'm definitely endorsing self-education. Self-education. <laughs> yes. I like that framing. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay, well, looks like we're running out of time. So do you have any final words uh, final words. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> well, final words. I guess I would say yeah. If you're if you're interested in meditation, I wish you the best of luck. Yeah, I just think it do been, it. Just yeah, sit down. It's like... been very helpful to me, and the particular type of meditation that has been helpful to me is called mindfulness meditation or vipassana. So that's the meditation part. And if you're interested in psychedelics, I highly recommend that you do a good bit of research before mm -hmm. you take it. And I hope that you take psychedelic experiences as a teaching experience, experience in addition to a recreational experience. And also, yeah, like that book, I once again recommend How to Change Your Mind. It mm -hmm. was pretty informative. Yeah. Uh, what websites do you think people should look to before their first trip? Hmm. I think usually when you type in uh, questions regarding information about drugs, somehow the top result that comes up is a U.S. government uh, website thing. I think they've figured out something <laughs> with the search engine optimization. Uh, so, and I would not trust that website much because it's kind of propaganda. It basically says, don't do any drugs. All drugs are bad. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't exactly know. The thing is I have been in science for a long enough time that I, it doesn't really matter. Like I can like read some stuff and I can make up my mind about how well it's 
written and how much research actually went into it, is it citing its sources, etc. Uh, so I don't really have, just off the top of my head, a website, a particular website that I go to. I've read like multiple books on, on, yeah. on different psychedelics. It's definitely, I think, yeah. important to get a diverse amount of sources because everyone has their own bias. Like the government thinks one thing, psychedelics endorsing organizations think another. Yeah. Um, make up yeah. your own mind. Yeah, <laughs> that's also important. I think the psychedelics evangelism can go too far on the totally. other, in the other direction. Yeah. Cool. Well, this I think this has been a productive conversation. Yeah. Um, we definitely produced the conversation. Yeah, we we did we done did that. So yeah, this is my first radio show. Yeah. Uh, Seven p.m. on Tuesdays, yeah. KBRX Austin. If you liked listening to this, um, hopefully you'll be here next week, and we'll cover more stuff. It won't all be about psychedelics. I think I'm gonna try and get the expertise of the smart people in my life and then maybe one day i'll share my own expertise too yeah, yeah, great, but great. Yeah. yeah peace out thank you for tuning in to the room of lives until next time